Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, that is page 311 uh, of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, as always, please let us know. We will get one to you, or you can take that one home with you. We are, Lord willing, drawing our study of 1 Kings rather 8 to a conclusion. Uh, this is what I believe is the climax of the Old Testament. Everything leads uh, up to this. And everything after this is really uh, coming from what happens here. This is crucial understanding of the Old Testament and, of course, our lives here um, uh, on this end of of Calvary. This, of course, is when God comes to dwell with his people permanently and how important that is. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. 1 Kings chapter 8, we want to start in verse 54. We'll go to the end of the chapter. Now Solomon finished offering all of his prayer and plea to the Lord. He arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. He may incline our hearts to him and to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments as it is this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated a house of the Lord. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering, the fat pieces of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. So Solomon held the feast at that time. And all Israel with them, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days. On the eighth day, he, spent, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our fathers, we come to the end of this momentous chapter, a chapter we often overlook when we think about the history of Israel. Uh, may we see uh, what a privilege it is to know that you are in our midst and that you are in the hearts of every person who gives their life to Jesus. And may we understand that as, as we go about our lives, we see in this text what we are called to be, what we are called to do, and what this means for us. So Lord, as always, we ask that you would open our hearts, and our minds, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. We, we acknowledge, as Solomon does here, that we are a weak people. We are a broken people. We are a sinful people. Would you give us the good news of Jesus Christ? May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I'm willing to bet that for all of us here today, there are certain moments in our lives that are seminal moments. That is, that when we, when we look back at our uh, journey, we think that, 
this particular moment shaped everything else, right? Uh, on this specific day or this specific event or this specific experience or this crisis or this moment, everything changed for me moving forward. I, I thought of two immediately when I was trying to think about my own life. One was kind of obvious, and that was at Vacation Bible School in July of 2000 when I first met my wife, right? I still remember that VBS was a big outreach for our youth group uh, when I was growing up, and um, our youth pastor would pull some of the more experienced guys, uh, the older youth, uh, aside and say, uh, did you get to talk to so-and-so? What did you think of so-and-so? And when my youth minister came to my beautiful one-day bride, and uh, he goes, what do you think of the new girl, right? And I, and I thought, well, you... Yeah, you, um, well, it's, the thing is, right, and I turned into Michael Scott, right, you know, just, just couldn't get two words out, right, and, and uh, certainly that is the case, that, that seminal moment, a moment you weren't expecting, shapes the rest of your life. Another moment that came to mind for me was, uh, I was probably my junior year, maybe my wife's senior year, we went to a college fair, and I knew I wanted to go into ministry, but I didn't really know, knew really what I was looking for, right? Um, and so all I did was every college, uh, I went, looked at their list of degrees. If it said religion, I put it in the bag, right? That, w- that was my plan. And so I, I went to dozens and dozens and dozens. If it said religion, put it in the bag. Let me just say, if anyone's here considering going to ministry, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. I don't recommend 99% of those schools, right? It's not religion. Well, it's not the biblical religion you're going to learn about. Nevertheless, uh, until I eventually came to one of Boyce College, not to be confused with a boys college. This is Boyce College. It's got a C in it, right? So Boyce College, I didn't never heard of Boyce College. I was ignorant of, of, of all of this. All I knew is I wanted to be in ministry and uh, talked to the ambassador who was a student himself. And he told me everything there was to know about Boyce College, and I was hooked. I was hooked. And in fact, when it came time to apply for schools, I only applied at one. And the minute I got accepted, I was a student of Boyce College. Seminal moment because of Boyce College. We went on the Southern and, and everything else as a result. I bet we all have those moments And without a doubt, the consecration of the Jewish temple, Solomon's temple, is one of the seminal moments in the life of Israel. Their experience here shapes the rest of their lives. This generation of Hebrews experienced the very real presence of God. They witnessed God and his glory coming down to be in their midst. What a seminal moment that is for them. That, I believe, is what explains why uh, this passage, these concluding verses, are dominated by two strong emotions or experiences, if you will. We can put it this way. First of all, it is, what does this mean for me? And secondly, do we have to leave? When I read this text, these are the two experiences, emotions that come. What does this mean for me now, now that I've experienced this seminal moment? And do we have to leave? this experience? To answer that first question, what does this mean for me? I think the first thing that Solomon shows us is when we encounter God, we are given rest. We are given rest. Having finished his prayer of intercession, Solomon now blesses the assembly and he draws the reader's attention to the divine gift of rest. Now, I suspect you're already well aware that the idea of rest is introduced in the creation account. 
God rested on the seventh day when he finished creation. Now, uh, what happens is, is that shortly after creation is that mankind, as we so often do, we messed everything up. And so what, you, what we have is, although we're introduced to the idea of divine rest among the people of God, that whenever God is dwelling with his people, his people are at rest. The problem is, we didn't want God to dwell with us anymore. And so we went into the wilderness, and there we found, we found chaos and violence and destruction and decay and weariness. And so the Bible seeks to address this. We all know that one of the deep longing of the souls, believer or non-believer, is to find rest. Rest. And so the Bible addresses this. I came across a good quote. Don't know who said it, so I hope they weren't too, too much of a pagan, but I love it anyways. It says, I am neither an early bird or a night owl. I am some form of a permanently exhausted pigeon, right? I like that. I like that, right? Because that describes most of us. All of us are seeking rest. We are seeking rest from this world of chaos and stress and weariness. So the Bible goes about this a number of ways. We are first introduced to Sabbath law. You, you, you know this, right? The Ten Commandments, you shall rest on the Sabbath. That is developed later in the Mosaic Law. The idea is an enforced rest, right? Uh, we get this, although we don't really have Sabbath laws in, in, in the way the, the, the Jews would have. There are times when we are sort of forced into a Sabbath, right? I'm going to bet you've had times in your life where you overdid it. You worked too hard, your schedule was too full, and what happens? Your body says you're done for about three weeks, right? Or whatever it is, right? You get the flu, you get pneumonia, the in-laws come over and you find a hotel, whatever it is, right? You, you, you will find, your body will force you into arrest. And that's sort of the pattern of the law is to say, look, we as humans won't take it. We're looking for rest. And in that pursuit of rest, we're wearing ourselves out. That's the irony. So here comes the Sabbath law saying, this is what we're going to do. You're not going to do anything on, on the Sabbath day. Mirroring the work of God who rested to reflect upon his creation, so too we will rest, reflect, and worship on that day. But as you can imagine, we humans love breaking rules. We love breaking rules. And so Sabbath law wasn't sufficient. So what the Bible gives us is Sabbath promise. Exodus chapter 33, while they're in the wilderness, my presence, God says, will go with you and I will give you rest. Joshua chapter one says, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Later, he says at the end of the book, chapter 22, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, where Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. You see that there was the promise that God is leading his people to a position and a place of rest. And so when you come into this scene, what Solomon is declaring here in these opening verses is God has given us rest. But notice the secret to rest is, uh, is nearness to the divine. Much in the same way that if it is a cold winter night 
and you've got a fireplace nearby, the closer you are to the fireplace, the warmer you are. The farther away you are from the fire, the colder you become. So too, if it is rest that you are looking at, the pattern we get in Scripture is presence with the divine means rest. It does not mean fixing all your circumstances. People, everyone around the world seems to like you. You've grown up in numbers and followers on the tic-tac, whatever, however you may define it. Rest is not in what happens to you, but in who Christ is and growing in intimacy with him. And this is why that when we look at the story of Israel, it doesn't take long before we see that they start marching away from the presence of God. It's why we can read in the Psalms, they constant cry out for rest. Psalm 22, verse 2, this is the Messianic Psalm. Oh my God, I cry by day, you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Psalm 55, verse 6, that I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I could fly away and find rest. I'm willing to bet that for many of us, if not most of us, we can find ourselves in the emotions of the psalmist. This is a universal desire. It is a universal problem. Many of us have known the experience that we can sleep in, we can do it all and still wake up tired. Why? Because being tired is not just a physical problem, though it might be. It is more deeper. It is a spiritual problem. This is why the Sabbath rest of Scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your weary souls. Interestingly, he says something similar in the next chapter. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless, right? The priests are having to work on the Sabbath, so they're working. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Here it is. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying there? If it is rest you are looking at, if it is rest you are desiring, you will not find it in a legal code. You will find it in the person of Jesus. So here, Solomon, in answering that question, what does this mean for me? His first answer is that so long as God is dwelling with his people, so long as the people of God are with in the presence of God, you will find rest for your weary souls. May I encourage you today that if you are exhausted, if you are weary here this morning, can I tell you what the solution is? It's not more sleeping pills. It isn't more social media. It isn't more of any of this stuff. It is simply come to Christ. Be in the presence of God. Isn't this what the, early, the, the, the local church should provide for us? You can sit on your couch and scroll through your phone all day, every weekend if you want. Or we can gather together with the people of God and grow in fellowship with one another. I can promise you one of those will stir up anxiety, fear, uncertainty, and weariness. The other, if done right, will produce rest, comfort, peace, togetherness. I am increasingly convinced that we humans were never designed to know everything bad that is happening in this world. 
Many of us are well aware that right now as we speak, bodies are still being found in Morocco following the earthquake. We know this. We woke up this morning with an alert on our phone. We know right now that morgues in Libya are being overrun from dead bodies from a flood. We know that right now. So many of us are following politics, local or national or even international, like it is game seven of the World Series. Every day we do this. And then we wonder why it is we are so exhausted. So exhausted. But for the believer, let it be that we gather with the people of God, knowing that He is good, He is sovereign, He is faithful, and together, let us find our rest in Him. Tim Keller is right when he says, if the resurrection is true, then everything is going to be okay. So what does this mean for me, having have this seminal moment of being in the presence of God? Well, I think the first benefit of grace is that of rest. The second benefit of grace we find, having encountered God, is righteousness, verses 57 to 61. I think it should be obvious to state that one does not encounter the living God without being changed. That should be an obvious statement. And we should note here that what Solomon tells us is that righteousness is not about rule-keeping. It is rather about honoring an intimate relationship. I don't know about your marriage or your relationships, but I can tell you a little bit about mine, that when we got home from our wedding, my wife gave me a list of like 20 rules that I had to follow if I wanted to stay married to her. Did, did, did you get one of those? All your husbands get I'd assume she got it off uh, Pinterest, I'm sure, right? Even though it didn't exist at the time. I'm sure you got a rule like that, right? You know, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just the first version of a honeydew list. Every honeydew list is, is, falls under those 20 lists, right? I'm sure you got one. No? Well, I married a, a river rat, so what did you expect? No, no, but, but the, the idea is we don't do that to people we love. Why? Because love is sufficient. It's sufficient for me to say I don't need rules to know that I should treat her with respect and be sensitive to her needs. I don't need rules for that. Grow, to grow in intimacy is to grow in service to one another where you want to be together. You want each other to be better off. You want to grow together. Love is sufficient for that. We don't need rules to be righteousness. What we need is a deeper, intimate relationship with the one we're seeking to become. And that's what Solomon tells us here. When we move away from intimacy with God, we will surrender to sin. The closer we are to God, the more we grow in righteousness. The farther away we are from God, the deeper we sink into sin. Solomon reminds the Israelites in this moment that they are to reflect God's perfect image. And in so doing, he is drawing them ever closer to the person and work of Christ. Go down to verse 59 where we can see this. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servants, the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God. There is no other. Draw near to the Lord. Yes, there will come a time when, as we'll see, that they have to go back home but as they go back home, God is still with his people. And if they will cultivate that relationship, you will grow not in just in rest, but in righteousness. In fact, I would argue that if it is rest you're seeking for, you'll find it in the perfect righteousness of Christ. 
In fact, this is exactly what the New Testament tells us. When our identity is in Jesus and in nothing else, we will grow in righteousness and love. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ. It's the language of identity. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul exhorts Timothy this in 1 Timothy 6. As for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In other words, if we are commanded to pursue righteousness, that is found when we pursue Christ, who is our righteousness. So when we come into the presence of God, what are the benefits of such an experience? Well, we find rest for our weary souls, righteousness, and finally, we are drawn again to the truth of redemption. Verses 62 to 66. The passage concludes with a series of offerings which mirror the offerings we got in the opening verses. I've shown you this the previous weeks. This is our fourth week in this chapter. You remember that, that the chapter 8 is a uh, chiasm. That is, it follows an A, B, C, B, A format, right? So it opens and it concludes with, with mirror narratives, right? So you get a lot of sacrifices at the beginning. You get a lot of sacrifices at the end. And then between there, Solomon blesses Israel at the beginning. He blesses them at, at, at near the end. And then the middle is the section on prayers, A, B, C, B, A. I've shown that a few times. So here it makes sense then that we get all of these uh, 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 sacrifices. In fact, the numbers are quite astounding, right? I, I grew up in the country, but I didn't know a farmer that had 22,000 oxen or 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of land you got to figure out, right? My lands, that is, that, that's, that's, that is a lot of, lot of sheep. But nevertheless, um, all of these are offered. Why are they offered? Because the blood of atonement was a graphic reminder of the depth of our sin and the greater depth of God's grace. That's the point. So Solomon is showing them that the way we encounter God's presence, the way we come into his presence is by the blood of the lamb. And then he says, as we start to transition from this seminal moment back to our lives by which we are changed forever, yes, we are given the benefits of, of rest. Yes, we are drawn to greater righteousness, but do not forget it all comes by the blood of the lamb. What brought us into the presence of God and what draws us into the presence of the wilderness, what we ought to keep our eyes on as the people of God is the blood of the Lamb. The cross of Jesus lies at the center of who we are as the people of God. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we will fade away from righteousness and we will not find rest for our weary souls. But when the gospel of Jesus lies at the core of who we are as individuals and as a people, we will forever be in the presence of God. Isn't that what the gospel says? Here in the days of Solomon, God dwelt behind a, a, a curtain. Later, Jesus comes himself as the tabernacle of God. But upon his ascension, we are told that those who come by faith in Christ God dwells in our hearts. What does that look like? It ought to look like a people 
who are, who are known by rests. A people who are known by righteousness. And a people who are shaped by the redeeming work of their Savior. Well, I said that there are two questions here, two emotions experienced this year. One is, what does this mean for me? And I think the answer is rest, righteousness, and redemption. Where God shapes us and calls us into the world to bring about rest, righteousness, and redemption. But the question that really sticks out to me when I read Israel here is what they're really asking is, do we have to leave? I'm going to bet there are moments in your life that if you could go back and hit the pause button, you don't want to leave that moment. This past Thursday, I was at Oneida Baptist uh, Institute, and I, I love the work that Kentucky Baptists are doing there. And one of the poorest counties in the state, where we are, we are changing lives every day. And it was a real honor to, to do chapel. And later, I did a, a Q&A, and uh, the, the high schoolers could ask any question they want. And that's always fun, because you have no idea what's coming. And they were really, really good questions, a lot on relationships, a lot on, on uh, life in heaven and stuff. And one of the questions had to do with, with heaven. And what the question was doesn't really matter. But, but, but it was a question that we don't have a, a, a clear answer on, right? And I said, look, when it comes to heaven, here's my default position. I cannot get past the thought that I will be looking God in in the face. That I will be standing in his presence and not ashamed. Exposed, but not ashamed. I don't know much beyond heaven beyond that because I can't get beyond that. Stunning, isn't it? Often we think of heaven, we're going to think, what am I going to be doing? I think we should be thinking rather, will I ever, will my jaw ever go back up, Right? awestruck, amazed. Would you ever want to leave that moment? Even if you had eternity to stay there? I I don't know if you will. So too, we get the hint from the Israelites that that as Solomon is blessing the Israelites, he's making the the atonement. Here they are at the Feast of Booths, you may remember, the Tabernacle of Booths. Here they are in these makeshift tents gathered around the temple, and, and they're supposed to be there for seven. They stay for 14. Would you ever want to leave a moment like that? I'm sure all of us remember that on February 8th, 2023, Asbury students went to chapel like they do every week. No one wanted to leave. And then more people came. and No one wanted to leave. And it lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. And eventually the Asbury faculty and staff had a problem on their hands. They're excited about the work of God, but they're still an academic institution. Students need to go to class. Professors need to teach. And so eventually they had, on February the 24th, sent everyone home. There's nothing wrong with that. Because the thing is that when you experience God like that, we may want to stay. But God doesn't call us to stay. He calls us to move. He calls us back into the wilderness to take possession of the land. And that through the work of redemption, we may see a people made righteous by the blood of the Lamb, and as a result, are given rest. This is the work of the church. Have you experienced Christ? Have you come before the throne of the Father? Have you surrendered all of your sin and your shame and your guilt and your fear? Have you laid it all down before Him? And has that seminal moment drawn you to redeeming work of Christ? Has that seminal moment drawn you into greater righteousness as Christ's? 
And has that seminal moment giving you the rest of Christ? And if not, why not? And what are you going to do about it right now? I want to ask as we go in this time of invitation, we ask ourselves, am I weary for weary's sake? Is my tiredness tied to something other than my spiritual journey? Have I found rest? And if I haven't found rest, is it because I haven't come to righteousness? And if I haven't come to righteousness, is it because I've never come to the cross? And what are you going to do about it? Let it be today. Let today be the seminal moment where you say, because I came to Christ, nothing was the same after that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to move in a way